When I was a little boy, I loved making these paper countdown chains. Uh, that might mean I'm a weird little boy, I don't know, but it was something that I enjoyed, uh, whether it's Christmas time or something like that, to, to make a loop for each day until Christmas would get here. Uh, and then you'd hang it up somewhere, you know, like this, and then each day you get to tear off one loop as you get closer to that day. I remember making one one time when my dad was going to be going out of town. He had a business trip. He was going to be gone for a couple weeks, and I never liked it when my dad traveled, when he was away. I liked it better when he was at home. He was fun. He was funny. He was kind. Uh, and so it was sad for me to, when he was gone and, and waiting for him to come back. But each day, uh, as, as I would get to, to go up to the chain and, and tear one off, uh, there was this little moment of happiness and joy as I would get closer to the day when he was coming back. Waiting is, is difficult sometimes. It's, it's sad sometimes, but it's, it's also strange because waiting and anticipating can also increase our joy and happiness. When, when you're waiting for bad news, you're waiting for biopsy results, it's excruciating. When, when your waiting is, is combined with fear or, or dread, it can be just overwhelming, exhausting, really difficult. But when you're waiting for something exciting, something happy that you know is coming, that's on the, on the horizon, that actual experience of, of thinking about it, of anticipating it, can, can increase our joy. This, this is why this might be controversial, but I don't like surprises. I'd rather know something good is, is coming months in advance uh, with, with my boys. The past couple years, we were able to go on a, a beach vacation. Uh, and I didn't surprise them and just, you know, the night before say, hey, pack your bags, we're going. No, I, I wanted to tell them a couple months ahead of time. And for them then in the winter... On those dark, cold, wintry, mixed, dreary days, uh, for us to be able to talk about it, to be able to pull out pictures from before and, and talk about our favorite parts of the vacation and to, to think about the, the feeling of the sun, how it's going to feel on our skin when we first step out of the airport and, 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 and talk about it, maybe pull out pictures and, and watch videos and, and, and that, those moments the, the little hit of dopamine, the little rush of joy, just in anticipating something joyful that's, that's in our future. And this is, what, this is what we remember as Christians during Advent. We remember that for thousands of years, God's people were waiting, eagerly anticipating, longing for a Savior, a promised Savior. They, they knew there was someone coming who was the answer to the world's problems. Someone coming who would rescue. Someone coming who would, who would deliver us from our sins. And yet we wait. And we wait. And, and even now, as God's people, we're waiting. We're waiting for the second 
advent, the second arrival of Christ as he's going to come again and make all things new, turn every wrong thing right, where, where he brings the new heavens and the new earth, where we are with him, where our sin is no more, where death is no more, and, and we wait. Yet one thing that we can do as believers, as a church, during this Advent season is to remind each other what that's going to be like. To remind each other who he is. Who is the one that we are waiting for. To, to marvel at the glory of Christ. To, to, to take out some, some pictures from his word and, 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 and to discover new things about him. To, to remember things that we've forgotten about who he is and, and, and just to maybe talk about what are some of our favorite things. To worship him, to adore him, to have the, the sense of awe renewed at who he is. And there are a lot of places we could go in God's word to, to pull out these pictures of Christ, these glimpses of, of who he is and, and to look at them and, and to let our minds dwell on the greatness, the treasure that we have in Christ. But during this Advent season, we're going to go to one of my favorites, which is in John chapter 1. John chapter 1 verses 1 through 18 is the, the prologue to John's gospel. And it's this beautifully poetic exaltation of our Savior. The, the four Gospels that open the New Testament each have a different perspective. They're, they're, they're shining a light on, on the, the Gospel or the good news of Jesus Christ. And, and John here in these, these first 18 verses describes Christ in ways that I think can ignite in us worship and awe and adoration as we remember who he is. Before I read, I'm going to read verses 1 through 18 today, but before I do, I just wanted to point out some things about the, the overall pattern or structure of these 18 verses. It's not really a, a poem, but it's, it's poetic in the way that he's written it and, and described things. You'll see at the very first verse and the very last verse, he says similar things. He's going to describe how Jesus is distinct from the Father, but yet he himself is fully God. Look at how he does that in verse 1. He says, the word was with God. So there's the distinction. And the word was God. We'll see as we read through this. When he's, when he's describing the word, he's describing the Son, or he's describing Christ. So he says, the Son was with God and yet himself fully God. And then when he comes down to the, the very end, he's going to wrap it together by saying something very similar. He says, the son who himself, who is himself God and is at the father's side. And so there's something about the person of Christ that, that John is wanting us to know as he begins his gospel. And that is that this God, man, this son of God is himself fully God, but yet a distinct person from the father. And then right in the middle of it, there's two different ways that he's going to tell about Christ. The first in verses three through 13, he's describing Christ using images from 
Genesis. And so he starts off talking about Christ as the creator and he, he uses imagery of darkness and light and life. And then he goes into this section where John the Baptist is, is the witness. He's the, the one who's testifying about the son. And then he has this section about how we respond to it. He says, some people reject it and some people receive it. And then in verse 14, he tells the story again, but now he's gonna use imagery from the book of Exodus where he says the word was made flesh and dwelt. That word dwell, as we get to that in a couple weeks, we'll see it's, it's this word for, for dwelling in a tent or a tabernacle and, and, and we, we behold his glory. And in Exodus, there's this image of how, how Moses wanted to see the glory of God. And then John again tells about how John the Baptist testified he was a witness about Christ. And then, how, what's the response? We receive grace and truth. And so I'll just leave that structure on the screen while I read. Let's delight, let's adore, let's worship as I read these 18 verses. In the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. All things were created through Him. Apart from Him, not one thing was created that has been created. In Him was life. And that life was the light of men. That light shines in the darkness. And yet the darkness did not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to testify about the light so that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but he came to testify about the light. The true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world. The world was created through him, and yet the world did not recognize him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, he gave them the right to be children of God, to those who believe in his name, who were born not of natural descent or of the will of the flesh or of the will of man, but of God. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. We observed his glory. The glory is the one and only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John testified concerning him and exclaimed, This is the one of whom I said, The one coming after me ranks ahead of me because he existed before me. Indeed, we have all received grace upon grace from his fullness. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the one and only Son who is himself God and is at the Father's side. He has revealed him. The way John tells this, he's, he's borrowing this language from the Hebrew Bible to show that this word, this eternal God, this Christ, the one who he's going to tell about in the rest of his gospel, this is the one that the whole Hebrew Bible was anticipating. 
He is the creator. He is the, the, the God with us, the Emmanuel that the scriptures were telling would come. So how does he do it? Let's focus on just these first three verses today. And there is so much here in these three verses for us to remember, to meditate on, to, to, to propel us to worship the one true and living God. John opens his gospel by saying these words, in the beginning. And if you grew up with the Bible or if you've been reading it, you know where that comes from. John's readers, many of them would have also been triggered in their mind to think Genesis. This is how the whole Bible starts, in the beginning. In, in Matthew's gospel, he starts by giving us a genealogy of Jesus that traces the lineage of Jesus back to Abraham. And then he tells about Jesus at his birth. In Mark's gospel, he, he skips that background and he opens just by saying, here's the beginning of the gospel, the beginning of the good news of Christ and, and jumps right in to tell about his ministry and his death and resurrection. Luke starts by giving this account of the, the birth of Christ and then, then he gives us a genealogy that traces all the way back to Adam. So in John's gospel, though, John isn't content just to show us Jesus is a descendant from Adam or a descendant from Abraham. John is wanting to show us, no, Christ existed way before that. Christ was there in the beginning. In the beginning, as, as Genesis reminds us, this is when God created the heavens and the earth. It's, it's in the beginning and, and so John is pointing us here to the eternal nature of the Son, that he has always existed. And he says, in the beginning was the Word. The logos is the Greek word there. Now, now if you hadn't read this before, you might not have immediately known, for just, just at this point, when you get to verse 1, in the beginning was the word, you stop right there. What does he mean by that? You don't yet know who he's talking about. As you read through this prologue, it becomes crystal clear. But why does he use the word to describe Christ? There, there are different thoughts of the background of this. One is the, the, the culture around them, the historical culture, the Greek philosophers they had used this term actually now for a few hundred years. In Greek philosophy, Plato's philosophy, he, he used the word logos and associated it with the divine principle of reason or order. For Aristotle, logos was rational discourse or a reasoned argument. The Stoic philosophers took this even a little bit further as almost this divine-like knowledge that if we could find alignment with the Logos, this is the, the closest that we can get to finding something divine, divine reason that permeates the cosmos. And so for some, for some of John's readers, they might have had this background in mind, and John is saying, do you want to know what truth is? You want to know what true reason, true wisdom is, the true divine principle that, that oversees this whole existence, this whole universe? 
let me tell you about him. It's Christ. But I don't, I don't know for sure that that's what John was doing. There, there, there's, there's some of that. I think it's even more clear. John had this Hebrew background. And the Hebrew Old Testament uses imagery of the word to describe who our God is and how he's revealed himself. Remember, remember what he just says is, in the beginning was the word. And so your mind's already in Genesis. And so what is God doing in Genesis? Well, he's creating everything. And, and how does he do it? It says, and God said, let there be light. And 10 different times in, in Genesis 1, it says, God said, God said, God spoke the world into existence. And so here, as we think of Christ as the word, we're, we're taken back into Genesis where this sovereign God of the universe speaks this world into existence. But the word is associated in the Old Testament with more than just creation. It's in the entire way that God makes himself known to us. If you're a Christian, you probably use word like this even today. We, we associate the word of God. It's almost like another name for the scriptures. It's the word of God. It's the way that God has spoken to us. It's his written word. And so as well, in the Old Testament, the word of God was, was the way that God had revealed himself. So, so much so that in Hebrews chapter 1, it says that long ago, God spoke to our ancestors by the prophets at different times and in different ways. But now listen to this. So here's the son. He says, in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. And it's not just that Jesus is just another one of these prophets who is speaking the word. No, he's, he's saying that actually Jesus becoming human is the way that God has revealed himself to us. It's a new way that God has made himself known is that he became human, living in our place, so that as we see the Son, we see the Father. You see, John makes this point if you compare John 1.1 with John 1.18. I think there's a slide on this that has John 1.18 on it. It says, no one has ever seen God. So he's, he's pulling some of that understanding of the Old Testament, like Moses when he was saying, Lord, I want, God, I want to see your face. And God says to him, you can't look on my face and live. And so God conceals Moses and, and passes by, and Moses has this glimpse of his glory. And so the, no one has ever fully seen God. But now in Christ, here's what John says, the one and only son who is himself God and is at the Father's side, he has revealed him. So, so one of the reasons I think that John is using the word logos or word to describe the son is because the son is going to reveal to us the father. He's going to, to reveal to us what God is like. So he says, in the beginning was the word, the self-expression of our God. And then he gives this Trinitarian language, this really simplistic way. 
but mind-blowing way of describing who the Son is. He says, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And there's a slide with that on it as well. It, it, it speaks of the Trinity. So when you think of Trinity, it says there's one true God. When, when, when you look at scriptures and you're, you're trying to understand how is God three and yet one, we've got these passages that tell us that, that there is only one true God. And yet passages all the way through scripture that point to the Father is God, the Son is God, and the Spirit is God. And then passages, though, that show the Father is, is not the Son. He's distinct from the Son. The Son is not the Spirit, is distinct from the Spirit. And so with these three things combined, we, we have this understanding that there is one God who exists in three persons. And two of those things show up right here in this verse, in verse 1. The fact that the Son is God. It says, in the beginning was the Word. The Word was God. But then it also says the Word was with God. And so that's showing this distinction between the Father and the Son. People may ask you, someone may come and knock on your door and argue with you about whether or not Jesus is God. And they will say maybe that, that Jesus was a God or Jesus was a prophet or, or Jesus was the first creation, and then, and then he made everything else. So how do you, how do you articulate from, from the Bible the clarity that, no, Jesus is himself fully God? I think there's four different ways. Three of them show up in our passage here. The first is, you see, Jesus is given divine names and titles in this one, it says that the word was God. In the Greek, that's theos, or it has this, this Hebrew root of Elohim. And so Jesus here, the word was God. So there are some places where he's just, he's called that. He's, he's given these divine titles. But beyond that, he also is, is described with actions that only God could do. And so in this passage, it says all things were created by him. And so when you look at Genesis 1 and you see in the, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. It's clear that this is, this is action, that only, only the God of this universe could create everything. And so here it says that the Word is the one who created everything. Paul, Paul says a similar thing in Colossians 1 where he says, for, for by him, for everything was created by him in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. And so there are divine, back to the other side, there are divine names or titles, there are divine actions, there's also divine attributes. And in this passage, one of those is that God is eternal. And here we see Christ, the Word, who has existed always. He was there in the beginning. There's other places where, where we can see that Christ receives worship. There are other beings and even people, angels, who, who people try to worship. But what do they do? When an angel gets worshipped in the Bible, they say, no, 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 no. Don't worship me. Worship God alone. But Christ receives worship. He welcomes worship because he is God. In this passage, we're, our, our minds are elevated. 
to who our God is, who our Christ is, that he is distinct from the Father, but yet fully God himself. And now let's focus in on verse 3. Verse 3 is unique because a lot of this prologue shows up later. It gets, it's developed. John's introducing the way he's going to further describe Jesus in his gospel. He doesn't ever come back to this theme that Jesus is the creator. He doesn't ever come back to that. Later he'll talk about life. He'll talk about light. He'll talk about Christ as God. He'll talk about how we receive, how we respond to it, how we believe. So, so much of the prologue is, is introducing his whole gospel. But, but it's only here that he stops to marvel at the fact that Christ, the word, is creator of all things. He says, all things were created through him. And apart from him, not one thing was created that has been created. It's as if John is, is wanting to make sure you don't fall into the trap to think Christ was the first creation by the Father and then he created everything else. No, John is, is making sure to say it in such a way that everything, if you made a list of everything that was ever created, Everything that ever has a beginning. Everything that ever has a start. Everything that at one point didn't exist was created through him. He says not one thing that has been created was created by anyone else. He says all things were created through him. All things, not one thing has been created except that it was created through him. And this, this starts to enlarge our view of who our God is. When you stop to think about all that he has created, when you think about how vast this created universe is, it, it reminds us how vast our God is. Elon Musk made this prediction that in 2024, humans would be on Mars. I got excited about that. It's not going to happen. Um, <laughs> but I do, think, I do think at some point, if the Lord doesn't return first, it will. Like we're on track. We'll get there. Imagine if, if you could go. Uh, I'd want to. I, I don't know. But in theory, in theory, I'd want to go. But it, right now, with today's technology, it would take you seven to nine months to arrive. So imagine, you know, you travel to Florida and it's like 16 hours. Um, you're traveling seven to nine months and you land and you get off and you're walking on Mars. How far away would Earth feel? How small would Earth and its eight billion people feel? Uh, and, and then maybe you didn't want to stop at Mars. Let's, let's say humans, we, we, we keep exploring. And we want to say, okay, this solar system, it's okay. But I want to get to the next one. The next closest star is Proxima Centauri. And, and if you could get on that same rocket and travel to that solar system, that star, it would take 6,000 years to get there. That's the closest star to us in our universe. And, and then if you say, yeah, but that's still Milky Way. That's still just kind of close here. 
let's try to get to another galaxy because there, there are 100 to 400 billion stars in the Milky Way. That's the estimate. How many stars are in the Milky Way? Not every galaxy is, a, is as big as the Milky Way. But there are now estimated to be 2 trillion galaxies or more. Some say up to 20. But you know, so just as, as you think how vast, okay, 100, 400 billion stars in our galaxy. Okay, we're, we're just wanting to get one galaxy over. There's 2 trillion of them, but we're going to go to the closest galaxy. It would take, with today's rocket, 749 million years to get to the closest galaxy. The problem is they haven't made a rocket that can last that long yet. Um, so, yeah, but, but that's the closest. So, so you just, you begin to think then, how big? And it's, it's, it's really unfathomable. We can't. We, we can try with, with some of these kinds of ways. We can try to imagine how big this universe is. And, and Christ here spoke. It's through the word of our God that then this explosion of galaxies come into existence at his word. This is who our God is. During this Advent season, if you, if you want to deepen your appreciation for the incarnation, stop for a moment and meditate on who Christ is. That he is the creator and God and king of all of the two trillion plus galaxies that exist in the universe. And he's the creator and God and king of every one of the stars and every one of those galaxies and, and of every planet that's orbiting every one of those stars, of every visible thing, of every invisible thing, of every animal, of every microorganism, of every angel, of every demon, of every nation, of every people group, of every human. This is who Christ is. And when you enlarge your vision of who God is, then you meditate on the fact that he became human. This is the Christ lying in a manger. You can't help but be moved to worship and adoration and praise and thanks, gratitude. John, John has a purpose in everything that he's explaining here, in everything that he's describing, he tells us at the end of his gospel, we're going, as a church, we're going through this next year, going to go through the gospel of John, and I'm really excited for that. When you come to the end, John says, here's why I've written these things. He says, there's a lot of other things that I could have written about Jesus, many other miracles, many other wonderful things that he has done, but these things are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. This is, John gives us, here's the transformational goal of his book. This is the effect that he wants it to have on your life. He wants you to know true life. 
And he knows that that life, that true life, only comes through his name. It only comes through faith in Christ. And so he's, he's written these things so that we would stand back and adore the word, the eternal God, the one who is distinct from the Father but is himself fully God, the one who is creator of all things, of everything in this universe. When I was a kid and my dad left for business, not one of my friends made one of those paper chain loops to count down the days for my dad to come back. Not one of them cared. But I did. Why did I care? Because I had relationship with him. Because I loved him. Because I loved his presence in our home. And so when he was away, I missed him. And, and I thought about him. And, and the, the thought of his return brought me joy. And for us as God's children, as we look forward to the day, because we know him, because we know what he's like, because we know the joy that he has promised, when we take time during this season to wait, to anticipate, to meditate on, to think about, to remember, to remind one another of, of who he is and, and who it is that we are waiting for, of, of who it was who was lying in that manger, then our hearts are filled with adoration, with praise, with joy, even as we wait. Let's pray.